so this summer, many of you know, I, I, uh, my family went on, on a, a couple vacations, and one of those vacations was to Long Beach Island, New Jersey. My brother-in-law, uh, his family has a place there, and um, so we got together, my sister, my brother-in-law, her kids, and my mom and my family were all there together, and it was a really nice time for kids to be with cousins and to see my, my sister and, and all those. Um, and one of the days, one of the days while we were there, we, you know, took my three kids and my three nieces and nephews, and we went to the Fantasy Island Arcade there and played games for an hour or so. And this, this arcade, was, it's a lot like, you know, if you've been to Dave & Buster's, if you've been to Scene 75, which used to be here at the Edgewood Town Center, uh, it, it's an arcade like that, right? There's a mix of those, like, you know, button-mashing games as well as, you know, these arcade games that produce tickets. And so my kids, they're bouncing from skee-ball to ring toss to, to some sort of, of, you know, like this musical ping-pong game. Uh, all the while, they're collecting tickets for their efforts. Now, thankfully, this was a technologically advanced arcade because instead of spitting out these hundreds of tickets that inevitably I would be the one that has to carry them around, uh, the, the tickets were just preloaded right on their cards. And so when their credits are out, when, when they had spent all, you know, played all the games they could, they were able to take those tickets to the, the counter, and they were able to redeem them for some hard-earned prizes. Elizabeth got this little ceramic turtle. Austin got a bouncy ball and some candy, and I don't even know all the tiny odds and ends that Catherine got. She has this little, like, real tiny, uh, like, foam plastic narwhal that she loves. So after dropping about, like, we probably dropped, like, 50 bucks at this arcade, and we walked away with about as much stuff that we could get at the dollar store for five bucks. Yeah, that's typically how those things work. But while we were there, there was a particular prize that caught my eye. It was a signed Saquon Barkley football helmet. Now, Saquon Barkley is a football player, plays for the New York Giants. He, he's uh, probably in his third or fourth year in the NFL. Uh, and I would have loved to have had this collectible. Now, he plays for the Giants here in Pittsburgh. I know it's not, it's not the Steelers, but the guy's a Penn State grad. And listen, like, us alum have to, you know, we have to celebrate our athletes when they actually do something in the NFL. Now, with the money that we spent on the arcade, it wasn't going to get me that helmet. I, I think my kids totaled about 5,000 tickets between the three of them. And the Saquon helmet was, I think, it, I'm pretty sure it was 2.5 million tickets. So that prize was completely out of reach. In fact, I could have come to the arcade every day for the next year and still not earned, you know, earning 5000 a day, still not earned enough tickets to bring home that, that coveted piece of memorabilia. This morning, we're going to talk about redemption. What does it mean that Jesus is our Redeemer? Now, I, I went with that opening story with the arcade because most of us, all of us, weren't around in the Old Testament times, whenever they had this understanding of what redemption looked like. But we do have a context for understanding and grasping this in our daily culture. Right? We understand this term redemption. The, the owner of this arcade, of the establishment, sets a value for the prizes that are behind the desk. And we take our hard-earned tickets and we redeem them in order to earn that prize. Now, for something like this arcade, that's fine for a few small prizes, you know, like the, a few dum-dums or a bouncy ball. But for the average person, redeeming one of these high-end prizes like a helmet, they had like five of them there. There was a Patrick Mahomes signed helmet. I, I don't remember all the, the athletes that were there. 
But they had a bunch of these, these helmets. They're, they're completely out of reach for the average person. So keep that in mind as we wade through the scriptures this morning. So I want to go, I'm going for a little bit of a throwback this morning. It's been well over a year since we looked at the New City Catechism. So a, a catechism, if, if any of you were raised in the, the Catholic Church, you're probably familiar to some extent with a catechism that's really foundational to their, their kind of discipleship program for youth. Uh, but a catechism is really just a teaching tool. It utilizes a call and response uh, framework so, to help you remember some kind of propositional truth. Right? Basically, if I ask a question repeatedly and you repeatedly give the form answer, that's going to stick in your long-term memory. Right? It's ready to be accessed. So the New City Catechism, it's a series of 52 questions and answers that are, were put together by the Gospel Coalition with the, the intent of communicating some of these core doctrines, core beliefs of the faith. And so from time to time, you know, I, I like to go here, usually when we're between sermons and I'm like, ah, I'm not sure what I want to preach on uh, this week. Uh, so so we, you know, we go here to kind of keep chipping away at it. So we're, we're on question 20. We've made it through 19 of the questions. So just to refresh your memory, question 19 asked the question, how do we escape punishment and are brought back into God's favor? And the short answer to that question was, we need a redeemer. We need someone who can redeem us, who can bring us back from the brink and usher us into God's kingdom. So let's go to question 20. Let me put this on the screen for us here this morning. Okay. So the question 20 says, who is the redeemer? Actually, why don't I invite you to, to read this out loud with me? The only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. Thanks for reading that with me. So when the Bible talks about our redemption, this is what it's talking about. I point, it's not up there anymore. That solely, actually, let's leave that up there in case you want to refer back to it. That solely Jesus Christ, who became man, was the one who bore the penalty for sin on his shoulders. And so I just want to look briefly at those three kind of pieces of that catechism answer, right? That Jesus is the only redeemer, that Jesus as God became man, and that finally he bore the penalty for sin himself. So first, we only have one redeemer. God's plan for humanity was Jesus Christ, full stop. That's it. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verse 5 tells us something similar. Paul says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Right? There's one God, and there's one mediator, one being who can bridge that gap between those, between God and men, humanity, Jesus Christ. Now, I would argue that we really need to stay grounded on this in our current age. Because this is, this is some exclusive language, and the exclusivity of Christianity is not the most popular doctrine nowadays. It's much more common for people to advocate that there are many paths to God. You've probably seen those coexist bumper stickers, where each letter of the word represents a different worldview. The, the original design was by Polish artist, I'm going to totally butcher his name, but I'll try, Polish artist Piotr Lodzinek. These Poles have some tricky names. But the original design only had the C as the crescent moon of Islam, 
you had the X as the star of David, of Judaism, and then the T was the cross of Christianity. That, that's originally how it was designed. But the bumper sticker that you and I see day to day, if we're driving in our cars, uh, features a, a bunch of different, you know, all the other, the, what is it, O-E-I-S, um, feature other symbols as well. Some of them are pagan, some of them are uh, new age, or s- some deal with sexual identity as well. Now, the principle of this idea is great. Yes, we should all coexist. By that meaning, we should all get along. Right? We shouldn't start wars over our differing ideologies. But I have to say that my experience, when I've interacted with people who have this logo on the back of their car, for instance, what it usually represents is not truly just coexisting, but a diluting of the differences between the faiths, highlighting that they all have equal validity. Do you see how that's different? Right? Coexisting is we can live alongside of one another. We can get along. I think that's by, by root. I agree with that principle. But I think it has come to mean in our culture that it doesn't matter which you pick. They're all the same in the end. But that's a problem. Because if you just take the three Abrahamic faiths, right, the, the three Western faiths that all draw their lineage from Father Abraham, right, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. Now, I'm not even considering a lot of the, the Eastern faiths, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, the, the list goes on. But those three faiths that just draw their root, they have the common ancestry of Abraham, they are all different and distinct. They are not the same. They're not just different paths to God. Either Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in the flesh, as Christianity argues, or he's not, as advocated by Islam and Judaism. Either Jesus died on the cross, as Christianity purports, or he didn't, as Islam argues. They they argue that it was actually Judas who, who died on the cross. Either Jesus is the Messiah suffering for the sins of God's people, as Christianity asserts, or the Messiah hasn't yet arrived, as believed by Judaism. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam cannot all be true. They have elements of the faith that are mutually exclusive. Now, that's not to say that everything taught between them is wrong. There is much alignment of what it means to submit to God and to fast, to pray, to love your neighbor in these, in these three different faiths. There's a lot of similarities. But on the critical details that describe how God addresses atonement for sin, there is stark disagreement. So when we affirm our belief through something like the catechism, that there is one Redeemer, it means that Jesus is God's plan for the world. That's it. There isn't another path to heaven. Either Jesus is the Savior of the world who ransomed us for our sins, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, or he's just another guy. And we're still stuck in, I mean, maybe you could argue he's a good moral teacher, as a lot of people like to advocate for, but uh, th- that didn't deal with our, our, the sin problem, right? We're still in the futility of our sins. That's what Paul argues with the resurrection, but the same concept in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So I just want to pause here. I, I hope, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, because a lot of times the exclusivity of Christianity has been used as kind of like a sledgehammer. I'm not advocating for that, right? We should be tolerant of others. 
Tolerance doesn't mean that what we believe is unimportant. And I think that's another thing, that true tolerance isn't just saying, well, there's no difference between us. Tolerance means that we can have starkly differing worldviews, but I'm not going to dismiss you as my neighbor just because we think differently. What's his name? I can't. John something. He wrote a book called Confident Pluralism. Fantastic. It really deals with this issue of tolerance. So we should be tolerant of others who disagree with us, but we should also boldly declare the exclusive truth of the gospel. Right? We see this in the words of Peter in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, he's given this a speech, and he says, and there is salvation in no one else. He continues, for there is no other name in, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? We, we don't need to kowtow to this cultural tide that wants to, you know, wants to take any assertion that our truth is the only truth is intolerant. I know it's not popular, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Jesus is our one redeemer because he is the one mediator between God and mankind. Now, he fills this role because in all of creation, he uniquely is a fusion of the divine and the natural. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. Now, how that works out, it's a mystery. The Bible has lots of mysteries, and it's okay to be, you know, not be able to wrap my 21st century kind of scientific mind around that. We talked about this a few months ago when we were looking at the Apostles' Creed, and so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just to recap, right, Jesus, the Son of God, Eternal with the Father, became born as a man and lived a real life in the first century AD. He lived a flesh and blood real life like you and me. My friend Bobby Perkins, who was here a few weeks ago, um, kind of used this as part of her, her sermon. She shared a few weeks ago that from Hebrews 4 that reminds us that Jesus can be our advocate because he knows what we go through. He's not distinct from the human experience, but lived into it. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way, but yet was without sin. And so Jesus lived a like, life like you and me, but unlike you and me, every moment of that life he trusted in God. So when we think of the concept of sin, or think about like falling short of God's standards, we often think of all the bad stuff that we and other people do. But the Bible is clear that even a failure to trust God turning our heart away from God, focusing on something that's not God and looking for our significance or identity or security in that. That, that, is, that is a failure. It's sin. It's not us living into the type of relationship that God designed us for. So where you and I have failed, Jesus succeeded. And because he succeeded, he can be an advocate for us. I like the way that John Chrysostom put it. It's kind of a longer quote might be a little hard to read, but I'll put it on the, the screen for you. So John Chrysostom, he was a church father in the 4th and early 5th centuries. Uh, he was known for his preaching. In fact, his name, Chrysostom, literally means golden-mouthed. So that's probably came by that title, honestly. So when talking about the incarnation of Jesus, this is what he said. Oh, I typed this out without any typos. For this, nope, that's not the right slide. Here we go. That doesn't look right. I'm going to read it off here. We're just going to go back to John Chrysostom's picture. All right, let's try this again. The only begotten, who is before all ages, who cannot be touched or be perceived, 
Who is simple without body? All this stuff. God is kind of inaccessible, he's saying. Can't be touched, we can't grasp him. Without body. Has now, through Jesus, put on my body that is visible and liable to corruption. Why? For what reason? That coming amongst us he may teach us, and teaching lead us by the hand to the things that men cannot see. For since men believe that the eyes are more trustworthy than the ears, they doubt of that which they do not see. He lived in the 4th and 5th century. I think that ex- that's, speaks true of the 21st century, that we believe with our eyes more than anything else, any other sense. If I can't see it, if I can't measure it, if it's not empirical, I don't believe it. Let me get back to this. Uh, they doubt of that which they do not see, and so he has deigned to show himself in bodily presence that he may remove all doubt. So God comes to earth, this invisible God comes to earth in a visible, vi- physical, visible God body, that's what Colossians chapter 1 says, so that he can remove all doubt of who he is, communicating to us. For this he assumed my body, that I may become capable of his word, taking my flesh. He gives me his spirit. And so he bestowing, he giving, and me receiving, he prepares for me the treasures of life. He takes my flesh to sanctify me. He gives me his spirit that he may save me. Chrysostom is saying precisely what the Bible advocates, that Jesus took on flesh to point us back to God and to give up his life as a ransom, a redemption for humanity. I I like the way that Philip Yancey put it. Philip Yancey wrote a book called, I think it's The Jesus I Never Knew, um, that this, this metaphor comes from. And he talks about how he has this fish tank. And, you know, he takes care of his fish, he feeds his fish, he cleans the tank out. But any time he, as the caretaker of the fish, approach the, the aquarium, the fish cower. You know, they go hide in that little castle or whatever it might be. To him, even though he provides for them, he is this big, scary unknown. And it occurred to him, if he wanted his fish to understand the depths of his affection for his fish, what would need to happen is he'd need to become a fish. And he need to go swim around the aquarium and speak to them in fish talk to communicate this. That's what Chrysostom is saying, that Jesus came in flesh to remind us, to educate us, to teach us of who God truly was. And then at the end of that, to show the lengths that God would be willing to go through, that God did go through, to bring us back, to redeem us. But Jesus was the only unique person to adequately mediate between God and humanity because of his dual natures, fully God and fully man. Now I want to look at that last line of the catechism. Let's put that back up. uh, Let's see. Jesus didn't just mediate on our behalf, but he was our redeemer, right? He bore the penalty for sin himself. Now I spoke about our modern understanding of redemption using the image of cashing in those tickets at an arcade but the Old Testament concept of redemption was really grounded in the Exodus event. In the book of Exodus, you can find this. For 400 years, God's people were slaves in Egypt. Egypt was the greatest military superpower of their day. They were abused. They were subjugated. They were forced into labor by Pharaoh, their leader. The Hebrew people were not able to leave, depart Egypt by their own power. They were stuck there. So God sends Moses, his servant, to request Pharaoh to let the people go. And time and time again, Pharaoh refused. So God starts kind of small with these these plagues, these minor plagues. 
Sometimes Pharaoh's like, all right, go ahead, but then he just changed his mind right away. Finally, God sent a plague that was far worse than the others, and Pharaoh finally gives in. The Hebrew people were not able to get out of that land on their own. They were helpless. But God, in his power and his mercy, created a pathway out, right? provided a pathway to escape. But listen to how Moses recalls this. So, so they're, they're kind of out of, out of uh, Egypt, on their way, en route to the promised land. And so they start this, you know, singing and dancing spontaneously. Listen to, to the worship song, you could say, that Moses wrote, Exodus 15. He sings, who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Kind of similar to what we sang this morning. Who is like you, majestic and holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in, in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. He, he un- understands this exodus process with redemption, that God has redeemed them from something that they couldn't get themselves out of. Moses is saying, God, you are powerful and good. We were helpless, but you redeemed us, right? You rescued us. You broke the bonds that enslaved us. You escorted us out of that hellhole. The event provides so much of the backdrop between God's, uh, of God's work with his people that he is the redeemer. Time and time again, the prophets, the poets, the historians write that it wasn't because of anything special that Israel did. Right? They didn't accomplish anything but only because God saw them and loved them that he acted on their behalf, that he was their redeemer. Now enter Jesus Christ. The people of earth continue to be in slavery, but it's a slavery of a different kind. Right? Instead of being physically captured by a foreign oppressor, the people now are now in spiritual bondage to sin. Much like Pharaoh's Egypt, sin is a cruel taskmaster. Sin abuses our self-identity, telling us that we don't measure up, that we're worthless, that we're nothing, that we'll never amount to anything, that no one will ever love us. It subjugates our will. Sin guides and shapes our behavior. It prevents us from loving God and loving our neighbors the way that we ought. You know, usually when we think about our vices, especially starting out, we think that our vices serve us. I've got this under control. But in the end, we always end up serving them to our detriment. And whether it be addiction, frivolous shopping, anger, whatever it might be, we are imprisoned by our sin. So Jesus carried upon himself the weight of the sin, the punishment of the guilt. He carried it on his shoulders as he stumbled up that hill to Calvary and hung dying on the cross. Jesus broke the chains that held us down and ushered us into the promised land, a land where we have freedom. Right? Jesus did what we could never do, providing a way out of this mess. Paul says in Galatians 3, he uses this concept of redemption. Verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Right? What Jesus did for us is redemption, just in the same way that the Hebrew people couldn't get themselves out of Egypt. God needed to redeem them from it. The consequences of this are significant for us. And so to close out our time, I want to highlight two major ramifications, two consequences of Christ's redemption. 
First is that through the cross, we see our value in God's eyes. Jesus set our value. Remember that opening story, right? My family and I are at this arcade, and I saw that Saquon Barkley helmet, something that's outlandish in cost, never would have been able to reach it. Now, the reason, there's a reason the prize was listed at 2.5 million tickets. There's an economics to it. Like, the arcade could never stay in business if it was giving out these NFL helmets at 5,000 tickets apiece. It, it, it was the, the, the quality of the gift is directly proportional with the cost to redeeming it. Right? Those little knickknacks that my kids collected, were not, they, weren't, they weren't all that valuable. You know, Elizabeth still has her little turtle, but a lot of these other toys are broken or lost already, right? Because they were, they were cheap toys and small amount of tickets to redeem them. But for the prize of significance, you have to give payment of equally something, something equally as significant. Jesus, the precious Son of God, bled and suffered, died and rose again for you. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still in our sin, we're still in our guilt, helpless, Jesus Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up, clean ourselves up a bit. He didn't say, there's no threshold that God's like, you just got to make it past this line. You get to this line, I'll carry you the rest of the way. Right? Our spirits were dead, and God breathed new life into them. Jesus, through his death, sets our value. No matter what the world tells us, no matter what we feel on the day-to-day, the reality that Jesus Christ died and rose again on our account for us speaks to the precious worth that God has given us. It's not that God saw some hidden merit in us that he just wanted to keep from getting destroyed, but he placed a significance upon us. We can be confident that we are someone, not because of anything that we've done or bring to the table, but because God said so. Jesus set our value by saying, by demonstrating that we were precious enough in his eyes to die for us. This is one of those things that was really revolutionary for me. Because I often often form my identity around what's going around me. If I feel like I'm doing, let's just say work. Some of you might be able to, to sympathize. If I feel like I'm doing good with my work, I feel really good about myself. But if we go through a rough patch here at the church, I internalize that, like, man, I'm a crappy pastor. Man, I'm a crappy person, right? It's so easy to go down that slippery slope to allow these outside constraints to try to set our value upon us. And so I I need to consistently, continuously remind myself that my value is not based upon what other people say about me. That's another thing you're going to have. I mean, my daughter's in middle school, right? Who wants to go back to middle school once you've been through it? It's, it's, just, it's a hard time to, to, to be a kid. It doesn't matter what those kids say about me, or, I, I don't know, adults are saying about me. I'm kind of mixing metaphors here, but you get the point. God says that I'm valuable, and that weight should be more than the weight of all, you know, the power that I give to, to these other things. But the other piece of application that I want to give us is it's something that we've already mentioned, and it's that last word of the catechism, himself. 
Jesus bore the penalty for sin himself. It means that Jesus accomplished salvation. And that might seem like a no-brainer, but we often live as if it weren't the case. This means that Jesus alone sufficiently redeemed us of our sin. No one else had to suffer for our sin. Jesus did. It means that I don't need to, like, beat myself up over my guilt. I don't need to suffer for my sin. Jesus did. Years ago, I heard Tullian Chevichian. Again, I probably pronounced that wrong, sorry. But he's, he's the grandson of Billy Graham. And he, sp- he spoke at a conference that I was at. And his main point was this. I love the simplicity of it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing, big old zero, equals everything. And so too often, though, we try to add something to that equation. Jesus plus my groveling equals salvation. Or Jesus plus my penance equals salvation. Or Jesus plus God, I'm really, really sorry equals salvation. Jesus plus my hard work equals salvation. But when we try to tamper with that equation and we add something to what Jesus has done, what we follow is no longer the gospel. Right? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is radically free. It's a gift. Plus nothing. And so this is great news because it means that you don't have to redeem yourself. You don't have to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and work really, really hard without making any mistakes to get to God. It means that your performance, while not unimportant, there is a place for works. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, classic passage, which says, for grace you have been saved through faith. It's not by anything you've did. It's, you know, that man should boast, but by grace alone, by what God did. But verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he prepared for us. So our, our performance is, it's not unimportant, but it is not the primary measure of your relationship with God, right? We cannot add to what God has done. All of our good works are not to get us credibility with God, but they're offerings, right? Like we take an offering here. They're offerings of gratitude in light of God's radical work. We don't do good works to get God's favor, but because we have God's favor, that's why we we work hard for his glory. Jesus himself suffered to redeem us from the penalty of sin. He rescued us from that slavery when we were not able to do so. He showcased his love and what great worth he affixed on us when he died to bring us that freedom that we so desperately needed. I want us to consider, may may we understand the gravitas of what Christ did on our behalf. May we never take it for granted for one moment. May our response to our freedom follow the precedent set by Moses, right? After they escorted them out, Moses is singing worship to the Lord, right? Let's turn our focus to the Lord right now. As we think about Jesus as our Redeemer, may we prepare our hearts to worship him for what he has done for us. For Jesus, the one and only Redeemer, has rescued us from our sins. Join me in prayer. Lord, I stand 
in awe of you. May we all stand in awe of you, never taking for granted this work that you have accomplished on our behalf, that while we were dead in sin, while we were helpless, God used this imagery in the book of Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel, where you, know, you, you describe Israel like just a, a, just a baby abandoned on the side of the road, kind of writhing in its own blood. That's who we were, but you took us, and you cleaned us off, and you gave us clothes, and you helped us mature and grow. Lord, through Jesus, you have saved us from sin. You have reconciled us to yourself. You have given us freedom that we might live abundantly. May we experience that in the here and now, recognizing that it's not by any effort of our own. Lord, that may we not fall into this trap of trying to, you know, now that we've been saved by grace, start adding on to it through our own righteousness. May we trust your work on the cross. And may we see the value that that has set upon us, that you have given us, imbued us with your worth. May our response be to worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.